Market got you down? How's your portfolio doing so far in 2022? Yeah, I thought so. Mine's not doing too well either. In fact, all of the gains that I made last year in 2021 have been wiped out in just this first month of the year, and we're not even done yet, right? Ah, uh, but if you were an investor who can measure her experience in years, if not decades, then you absolutely understand that this happens. This is normal, that the stock market always goes down faster than it goes up. But as I hasten to add, it always goes up more than it goes down, which is good news. And good news, too, that if you're doing it right, if you're a rule breaker investor, you are regularly, somewhat mechanically plowing your precious savings into the market with every paycheck, month after month. And so you know that when the market gets whacked, as it has this month, as it did one really bad spring just two years ago, you know that looking backward from the future, you're going to appreciate getting the entry points and cost bases afforded you during this month's downdraft. So it may not feel good right now, but it's going to look good. And as Billy Crystal once said over and over, impersonating Fernando Lamas on Saturday Night Live for the old hands among us, and Lamas was right, it's better to look good than to feel good. And so, you look marvelous. Market downdrafts, Microsoft snapping up Activision Blizzard, and NFT Redux with Aaron Bush for your mailbag only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Yeah, it's been it's been a month, hasn't it? January of 2022. Certainly has seen worse months, even in recent years. March into April of 2020, far worse, just to be clear. And we've seen some really bad quarters, 2018, 2016. These featured, I know it was a big bull run, wasn't it? And a lot of us have this perspective that the market just went straight up from 2009 through 2021. But the truth is that 2016, at one point, I was down a full quarter of my net worth. Just like in the last month, I'm down one-fifth of my net worth. So these, while volatile times, are not that unusual, especially if you are taking the rule breaker investing approach. And I, I trust many of you are. I don't ever expect everybody is or should. And I hope we have a lot of listeners, new or old, who in part subscribe to some of the things that you hear on this podcast. I certainly am flattered by anybody who follows most or all of what you hear from me. I put myself out there. I do my best. I'm authentically telling you what I'm doing and why all the way through seven years and counting on the podcast, but I bet a lot of us pick and choose. And so you're left with different degrees of loss, a sense of loss in this last uh, six months or so, especially this last month. I, I underperformed 2021 myself. I think I'll share that a little bit later, though. Certainly, we'll be talking about that. It feels important to say at the end of January 2022. But looking back briefly on the month that was for this podcast, we opened it up with Essays from Yesterday, Volume 3, a delight to share with you. Four different essays written at different points 
in the past, sometimes the way back past, and I hope it still felt pretty present and instructive. And that's it's always fun to randomize and see what I'm going to be sharing with you on the Essays from Yesterday series. That was volume three. And then, of course, NFTs with Aaron Bush, NFTs 2022. We did Bitcoin 2021 with Aaron. We did NFTs 2022. And Aaron, indeed, will be joining me this week to answer a number of your questions, most of them about NFTs, but we'll talk market as well. I'm looking forward to his arrival. Thanks for some great questions prompting Aaron returning to Rule Breaker Investing for this mailbag. And then last week, of course, Grayston Bakery and its CEO, Joe Kenner, open hiring. If you hadn't heard the phrase before, I hope you'll never forget it, as I've written elsewhere. It's a remarkable story and at least one lovely note to share on this week's mailbag about Grayston Bakery. So that's where we were. It was just three weeks leading up to this final week of January. And therefore, of course, it is your mailbag. And most mailbags start with a few hot takes from Twitter. I'll just do two this week. First one up, this one from J. Thomas Cade, at Thomas underscore Cade, K-A-E-D-E, a fun follow on Twitter. Thomas, thank you for your tweets over the years. I hope I got your last name pronounced right. Just played Modified Candyland with my family. Draw three cards to select from per turn to add some agency and strategy. Huge improvement. Thanks to at David G. Fool and whoever wrote into the podcast to suggest this mod. Well, that one brought a big smile to my face. Indeed, it was Jeremy Nichols. It was last month's mailbag. My long time axe to grind. I do see the positives there, but mostly an axe to grind about the game of Candyland and the complete lack of agency in the game. And Jeremy Nichols is the one who has solved it. Now, for many of us, those of us who either choose to, or in many cases are forced to play Candyland, usually with young children, you now have a way to improve the game. Just to review the traditional way to play Candyland, the rules have you pulling a card and simply following what the card says. Move forward two blue spaces, for example. But as Jeremy suggested, why not draw three cards and then let your child choose which of the three to select? And indeed, it sounds, Thomas Cade, as if that worked for you and your family, and I'm delighted. I don't have any young kids to play that with anymore. One day, I'll have some grandkids, and I know I'm going to have more fun playing Candyland thanks to this intelligent and sharing community. Thank you again, Jeremy Nichols, and Thomas Cade, and now slightly more serious and more on point for this week's podcast at 307. Fool tweeted, this market has been quite rocky for a lot of innovative and rule-breaking companies the last few weeks. It's always nice to get some timeless advice from at David G. Fool on the weekly at RBI podcast, a very foolish start to the still new year. And I think you were reacting to essays from yesterday, and thank you at 307 Fool, and indeed, I front-loaded a few mailbag items to speak to the market here at the end of January 2022. So I say, without further ado, let's get into it. Rule breaker mailbag item number one. And thank you, Steve Hostetter, for writing this wonderful note to kick us off here with the new year. Dear David, on your recent Besties podcast, you mentioned the February 17th, 2021 podcast titled Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Sailor, And during that, it was a mailbag. During that podcast, you read my letter. I was the firefighter. I'm writing you today as a way of memorializing my investing results and lessons learned from 2021. As of December 31st, my portfolio was down 3% for the year, while the S&P was up 
27%. Now, although lagging the index is always disappointing, the explanation for losing so badly is clear, which isn't always the case. The bulk of my portfolio is rule breaker recommendations that grew exponentially in 2020 due to the effect of COVID on business. The stock price of several of these companies went up dramatically in 2020 and then receded in 2021 as the country reopened. In 2021, traders traded out of several rule breaker stocks I own and bought cyclical stocks. I believe it's as simple as that, Steve writes. Even in 2020, it seemed reasonably obvious that sooner or later, a rotation like this would occur. The obvious question might be, why didn't I, Steve Hostetter, rotate into cyclicals? Or if you will, dear listener, why didn't you or why didn't I, David, rotate into cyclicals? It's a rhetorical question. Although Steve doesn't leave it rhetorical for long, he continues, I made a conscious decision not to attempt timing the market in this manner, and I'm still okay with that decision. There was no way to know when a rotation would occur, how dramatic it would be, or when it would be over. It could have been several more months before it occurred, and or just a quick blip on the radar. I like the companies I'm invested in, and generally speaking, their theses haven't changed rotating out of my companies and then back in later was a fool's bet. That's with a small F. As I've proven to be a poor market timer, I've attempted it numerous times in the past, and it often cost me dollars and hair loss. The last time I seriously considered timing the market in a meaningful way, Steve writes, was between former President Trump's election and his inauguration in late 2016. I'm not intending to be political. But I knew Donald Trump to be unpredictable, to the point that he takes pride in it. I also knew the stock market holds predictability in high esteem and can be volatile without it. For this reason, Steve writes, I felt the market would have a rough time in 2017. Thankfully, I did nothing dramatic. My portfolio increased 48% that year. Wow, was I wrong. The next time I was sure my portfolio would take a hit was at the beginning of the COVID scare, and it did for a few months. I didn't seriously consider making any market timing moves this time, but would never have guessed that the S&P would return nearly 18% in 2020 taken as a whole, and that my portfolio would quadruple it. Suffice to say, I'm more and more a believer in not trying to outguess the market. Now, Steve's going to go on from here, and I'm going to keep sharing this, but I really have to double underline a few of the things he's been talking about. I completely agree on market timing. We'll talk about that in a sec. I agree with you on rotations. I think that you've done the right thing all the way through, Steve. It does hurt. The right thing does indeed hurt sometimes. If you're going to be an investor acting by definition for the long term, you are in that roller coaster seat for the entire ride, you're going to go up and down. It's all part of the fun. All right, let me pick up Steve's note right here. Now, my biggest disappointment in 2021 wasn't for my portfolio, but for the portfolios of some people that I care greatly about. I have family and friends that I introduced to Rule Breakers this year, and the timing couldn't have been worse. I so wanted them to have a good initial experience, but it was a tough year for several high-performing rule-breaker companies on our list. To my people, 
as well as the other new rule breakers that had a tough 2021. I'm sorry. It sucks, Steve writes. Believing that the long game is the only one that matters is easy to agree to on day one of investing, but living it is a perpetual mental challenge. It's the most difficult part of investing and rarely, if ever, completely mastered, in my opinion. Don't quit. Give it time. I think it will be worth it. And then Steve closes with some lessons learned in 2021. First, he says, I invested in some IPOs and SPACs this year, making small quotes bets on some exciting, innovative companies. Most of them were discussed on Motley Fool podcasts, but I don't believe any of them were formal recommendations. I'm committed to three to five years, but for the most part, they are big losers thus far. I learned that companies can have amazing new innovative products, but still have a long way to profitability if they ever get there. In addition, the stock price of these companies often plummets when the hype fades and or the insiders reach a date they can sell their shares. I didn't invest much, but from now on, I'll probably heed the Motley Fool's general advice to give companies like these a few quarters of reporting before investing. An additional problem with owning these companies is that I have to figure out how I'm going to monitor them and make buy or sell decisions without Motley Fool analysts and the discussion boards. Historically, I lack the motivation to do it consistently in addition to not having enough expertise, something I should have considered before investing in them. And the second lesson I take forward from 2021 is that companies don't have to be small to make big moves. I like to invest in companies with relatively small market caps because of the potential multiples. Well, this year I deployed new capital in Microsoft, Alphabet, Apple, and Amazon as I thought they would be safe investments. That worked out well, and I'm amazed at how these behemoths continue to grow. Rule number one, Steve closes, invest in great companies. Rule number two, see rule number one. Well, that's it for this year's report. It'll be interesting to see where the market and my portfolio are at the end of 2022. Full on, Steve Hostetter. And full on, first of all, to you, Steve. I was highly tempted to stop at multiple points. I, I still did a couple times just to speak to the wisdom that you just shared with us, but I've tried to kind of save it all up to the end and respond all at once. So just a bunch of things I like, like about this note. First of all, Steve, I love the lessons that you're intending to learn. And I love that you took the time to articulate them for yourself and then you shared them with us and you put it forward for me. And you've given me a platform to to speak to it some as well. I want to say, and I alluded to this at the top of this week's podcast, last year my portfolio was up 20.4%. The market, as you mentioned, was up 27%. So I underperformed by about 7 percentage points. 20% is still nothing to sneeze at in any given year. But here's the main point. So far this month, as we record this afternoon, Tuesday, January 25th, the market is down 9% so far this year as measured by the S&P 500. I'm down 19.6%, which means that pretty much all of my 20% last year has been wiped in a single month that isn't even over yet. So I can absolutely relate to that. I also want to mention that in 2020, like you, I had a fantastic year. The S&P 500 was up 16%. I was up 69%. So these are all reminders 
that any given quarter or any given year can say something really great or really horrible. But what really matters, and I'm not speaking to you, Steve, here, because you already know this, but I hope some of your friends and family are listening, because what really matters is not 2021 or 2022. Anybody who joins the Motley Fool services these days encounters a mindset. You're asked to answer a few questions as you embark upon investing, not trading, investing with us. You're asked to say things like, do you intend to buy 25 or more stocks? Do you intend to hold them for at least three years, etc.? I think it's pretty revolutionary what my brother, our CEO, Tom Gardner, and what so many of our analysts through our services do, which is to really establish up front and I bet you did this with your friends and family, Steve, to establish up front the expectations that each of us should have for the investing that we're going to be doing. And it's never about any given year. So point number one, back to you, Steve. I love the learning of lessons, and I love that you shared it, not just with friends and family, but with so many hearing us right now. The second thing I wanted to speak to was simply rotating. In the past, you've rotated sectors. You've sensed the market might be going down at a certain point, so you try to shift away from stocks that'll get hurt into stocks that won't get hurt as much. You report mixed results. It sounds like mixed results at best. And I would report my results too, except I simply have never done that because I don't think it works very well. And so I agree with you. It sounds easier than it is. You're thinking, here's this pandemic coming, or here's this new political development, and you're thinking I can trade ahead of that, but often the timing is off. And so, yes, I agree. It sounds easier than it really is, but even more important, it underperforms. It typically underperforms merely holding great companies. And the tragedy of it is it isn't just underperformance numerically and therefore financially. It's that it takes more time to do in addition to underperforming. So, I want to double underline as a fellow sufferer of this hard market right now that while it doesn't feel good at all, this is normal. It's happened before. It's happening right now. It will happen in future. But the real normal is that the market rises given time. And that's what we need to give it. I know I'll be echoing that once or twice more in this podcast. You know, I saw a great tweet from one of my favorite follows on Twitter at Dan Joshua Rubin. Dan Rubin, who's a longtime fool, Broadway Dan on our boards, known to many fools for his great sense of humor. And here is the tweet. And I hope everybody's listening and sitting on the edge of their chair for this one because it is so, so true. He tweeted this just in the past week, and I'm paraphrasing. Going from one to two to 20 to five, one to two to 20 to five, picture a stock or just the numbers, one to two to 20 to five is better than going from one to two to three. But it feels a hundred times worse. In both cases, you started at one. In the first case, you ended at five. In the second, you ended at three. But you had to endure all kinds of volatility to way outperform that three with your five. And it doesn't feel good. And when I say the rule breaker investing approach and the rule breaker mentality. Some of us are hearing me nodding your head saying, yeah, that is how it works. That's how I think it works. I can accept that. I've invested for as long as David has or longer. We've got some old hands listening to me right now. That's the way things are. I can take it. We also have people hearing me for the first time who are saying, wow, I don't know that I want that much volatility or I don't feel prepared for that. And I completely understand that as well. 
What this podcast is about is talking about rule breaker investing, where we like the volatility. We never like volatility on the downside, but we know capital V volatility, of which downside volatility is just a subset. Capital V volatility is our friend over long periods of time. It's what helps us outperform the market. So I really love that tweet. That's why I wanted to share it from at Dan Joshua Rubin. Please remember that, fellow fools. One to two to 20 to five is way better than one to two to three, but it feels 100 times worse. One or two more things before. This will be probably the longest mailbag item because I think it's the most important one. It speaks to where we are right now. So one or two more thoughts. One is I appreciate you drawing a distinction between what you've read in Motley Fool articles, and then what our formal recommendations in our services are. A lot of people who are not members of the Motley Fool will just see us write an article, often written by a contractor, somebody who's very talented that we like working with, but may not agree or feel the same as I do about rule breaker investing. They're just writing the stories of the day about different stocks. And that is different from the formal recommendations you we give you in our services. I have not ever once invested in a SPAC. I never picked SPACs when I was picking stocks for Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers. When I stepped away from doing that after 28 years last year, I didn't buy any SPACs last summer or fall or this winter. And I don't think I intend to buy any SPACs this year either. So there's a big difference between the formal recommendations we give in our services, which by the way, often work really well over time, but sometimes really don't work out. I've had more bad losers than anybody else in Motley Fool history. But it's important to draw that distinction between the free articles you'll see on the web and, of course, our Motley Fool advisory services. And then the final thing I'd like to say, Steve, and the one that hurt the most, I know it hurts you the most too, and it it hurt to read, is that through your enthusiasm and evangelizing investing, you got friends and family going, and it happens to have been at a tough time. You got them excited. They bought their first stocks. Maybe they bought Roku last year or Zoom last year. And while Roku and Zoom had remarkable 2020 performances and they're stocks that we like for the long term, the reality is in 2021, Roku lost over 30% of its value. Zoom, in the age of Zoom, lost over 40% of its value. Now, Steve, you and I both know that they rocketed way higher in 2020. It's a one to two to three to 20 to five kind of a phenomenon, but that doesn't help those who listen to us and bought with excitement and anticipation at 15 or 18 or 19, sticking with our one to two to 20 to five. It doesn't feel great at all to go from 18 to five. And yet that's what happens. And that's always going to happen to some of us when we start investing. In fact, I'll describe What I see is the fool's quandary here at the end of this mailbag item, which is that people are most excited to join Motley Fool Services traditionally because they've seen how well the stock market's done. And so with hope and anticipation, they sign up. And often that's when the market's about to drop for a little while. And that can turn a lot of people off, sometimes permanently, I always hope not, from investing. But there's simply no way around it. It's not just the Motley Fool, general interest in CNBC, the stock market writ large, always rises and rises looking backward at performance and will often have our peak subscription and new members. And this is not just true of 2020. It was true of 2015, 2010, 2000, going back years and years. It's always going to happen because of human nature. 
our friends and family and new members will finally start listening to us often at the very time when the market's about to drop. Now, a lot of people came to the market new in 2017 and 18 and 19. It was true of this podcast, and you had a great couple of years. So it's not a sense of impending doom when any new person with enthusiasm starts to invest. It doesn't mean the market's about to drop, but it can happen and it hurts. So I empathize, Steve, and Steve's friend and family listening to me right now, and everybody else who got started or even more started a friend or family member. I hope that you set them up for success. It's all about the full journey, not the first few steps, whichever random direction those first few steps might go. And I would hope just the history of The Motley Fool, that here we are about to enter our third decade of providing this advice. I hope you'll see that it does win if you just give it time. And so for a lot of us, patience is asked of us. And the winners who will win are those who exhibit it. Thank you, Steve Hostetter. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number two. This comes from Joe, whose email address starts with the phrase beach bum for life, which which I like a lot. Hi, David. Thank you for taking the time to read my correspondence. I know you often say dips by dips in quotes, and I wanted to challenge you a little on this. When I look at my investment portfolio, Joe writes, my biggest winners were purchased at multi-year lows when the market indices were in bear territory negative 20% or more from their previous highs. The most money I ever made in my investment life was buying the COVID dip in March of 2020 when the S&P 500 dropped 35% in five weeks. I was ready with a lot of dry powder and I put it to work very quickly and many of the stocks I bought are now trading for 100% to 500% higher. I recently met a very successful investor who is 78 years old and has been investing for over 40 years. I asked this man for his best investment advice, and his advice was very simple. He said, buy companies you would never want to sell and buy these companies in bad markets when the major indices are down 20% or more. Between these periods, simply accumulate cash. End quote. Well, Joe goes on, I did a bit of research. I realized there were seven times in my life where the market entered a bear phase. Realistically, Three of these times, I was too young to invest seriously and had little money. But the other four times were great periods to invest, 2002, 2008, 2009, and 2020. I figure over a normal person's investable lifetime, there might be around nine bear markets from ages 25 to 70. Joe's saying here, once every five years. Well, I chose 70 simply because by that age, most people will probably be drawing funds instead of investing new money. Is it unrealistic to open one's brokerage account and only invest in nine short windows of opportunity? From my research, the average bear market is roughly nine months in length. All bear markets in history have been incredible buying opportunities for both the indices and quality businesses. I can't find a period in history where buying during a bear market didn't lead to incredible profits. My question is, when you say dips by dips, are you suggesting it might not be a good idea to buy stocks during bear markets? Thanks for the great weekly podcast, always bringing positivity and inspiration to us, to us do-it-yourself investors. Kind regards from freezing cold Toronto. Now I can kind of see why you aspire to be a beach bum for life, Joe. Signed, Joe. 
I can head this one off at the pass pretty quickly. I feel like I've already spoken a lot to this with a previous item, but I want you to know, Joe, the very first time I wrote my column, Dips Buy on Dips, which was about two decades ago, I realized somewhere in the last 10 years that a better phrase, which is what I've been rocking since, is dips wait for dips. And I do still stand by that. I want you to know that I believe the best way to approach the market is to be buying every two weeks. If you're getting a salary check, if you can, park 10% or more if you can. But if, if you can't, do your best. Park as much as you can every two weeks for months and years and years. I love your 78-year-old story, and I think it's certainly attractive to think, and it's always going to be true, that at the bottom of every hairy bear market, those will be the best buys you ever make. You won't know it at the time, and it will feel really bad when every two weeks you're mechanically dollar cost averaging into the best companies of our time. But you'll see in retrospect, yes, that your best buys will always be at market bottoms. But that doesn't mean that you haven't been rewarded, not just for buying in 2008 and 2009, but you've been rewarded for buying in 2010, 11, 13, 2017, etc. If you had not put your money to work over the last 10 years, you'd be way behind where we are, even if, like me, you've lost a fifth of your net worth in the past month. So, Joe, I'm here to encourage you, and of course, everyone listening to me, to be persistent. Persistently invest in the market. At all times, I try to stay 100% invested. And here's the key maxim. This is how I put it these days. To be as clear as possible, dips wait for dips. I think we should all be investing all the time. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number three. This one comes from longtime fool Joseph Crivelli. Joseph, what a lovely note. Horse of a different color here. We're going a, a different direction with mailbag item number three. This is about Grayston Bakery, our subject last week. David, I find it fascinating that your path has crossed that of Grayston Bakery. Another example of it being a small world. As an inside outsider, that's the way Joseph characterizes himself, as an inside outsider in my teens and 20s, I've gathered many memories of life and the lives at Grayston. On the Grayston Bakery website, in the history sections of 1982, the photo in front of Grayston Mansion in Riverdale, and again in 1992, that's 10 years later, the photo on the porch of the little house on Ashburton Place in Yonkers, you can see my mother smiling broadly with the rest of the Zen community of New York. My mother lived in Grayston and served the community as Tenzo, which is the title of the cook and honored by sitting in meditation next to sensei and that would be bernie of course bernie glassman the founder of grayston bakery years later the community moved into yonkers and my mother took on the role of buyer tasks of which included finding the chocolate flour and nuts for the brownies and blondies and everything else of course getting it right was very challenging for industrial orders in the early days but they excelled in market and specialty orders their early offerings included a truly wonderful selection of breads, pastries, and to-order wedding cakes. One special order, I recall, for American Express featured gold. That would be real gold, which apparently is inert and passes through you to decorate a large gold card cake. A retail outlet, a coffee shop, was also a short-lived feature 
of the bakery in the 1990s. The Grayston Bakery Cookbook is probably out of print, Joseph writes, but worth finding used. Just fascinating in conclusion that my foolish world with a capital F would intersect this part of my mother's life, and by extension, mine too. My mother, whose retirement accounts I manage foolishly, will be pleased when I tell her. Cheers, Joseph Crivelli. You know, you grow a community big enough in life. In this case, I'll say The Motley Fool in this podcast you're going to have connections into almost everything. And Joseph, I really love having that connection through you to your mom and to the bakery in its early days. And what a delight it was to share its present day CEO and where Grayston Bakery is as a conscious capitalism company on last week's show. Full on, Joseph and Mama Crivelli. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number four. Dear David, my name is Ronnie and I am 19 years old. I've been investing for about two years now, thanks in large part to the work of The Motley Fool. My question for you is about how to convince younger people like myself to start getting invested in the stock market. After many months of pleading, I was finally able to get my girlfriend to open an investment account. However, I don't believe that she's fully sold on the importance of investing, especially early on in life. Specifically in recent weeks, she will go online and see that the S&P is down a few percentage points and immediately be scared away. I also have many friends that do actively trade and understand the stock market. However, they are trading rather than investing and are not focused on long-term gains. What advice would you give to people like me that are trying to convince younger people about the importance of investing to set them up for success later in life. Thank you, and fool on, Ronnie Fleck. Well, Ronnie, you know I love these notes, and I'm proud of you that you're already two years into your investment career at the age of 19. Great job. We don't have time because this is a letter, not a dialogue, but we don't have time to find out why somebody maybe a parent, maybe you and your own initiative felt like you should get started in your teens. But boy, you're right. I wish everybody would. And maybe we can help them out here with Rule Breaker Mailbag item number four. So I have three quick thoughts. And then my guest star will join me to share a fourth thought. Any one of these I hope will be enough to convince anyone, Ronnie, but here they are taken as a quartet. My first thought is back of the envelope. Do you have a piece of paper, a post-it note, or an actual envelope somewhere nearby? Draw a line from the lower left to the upper right. Make it faintly look like a graph and just show that graph to anybody. And when they say, what is that? You say, that is your net worth over the course of your life if you start now investing in the stock market. And they might say, well, what is the length of that graph? And it almost doesn't matter Because any meaningful period of time, let's just go with 20 years, 50 years, any meaningful period of time, it goes from the lower left to the upper right. And the only way to get all the way up that upper right is to start today, not four years from now or 14 years from now. Whether the market's about to rise or drop tomorrow won't even be evident when you look at that graph 60 years from now. When you're 79, Ronnie, that's how it's going to work. I'm very confident about that. So answer number one is back of the envelope, make up a graph, make your point. My second answer is share a podcast. 
We actually did a Get Started Investing series on Rule Breaker Investing a few years ago that I intended to be an evergreen podcast that anybody, girlfriends, friends, family members of any age could listen to to get started investing. So it's one part inspiration, one part perspiration, talking about what you actually need to do, like open up an account, which your girlfriend's already done, thanks to you. All the things that get you started investing and why are there. The date, by the way, was October 3rd of 2018. It was part one of two. It lasts about 60 minutes. I think that's 60 of the more important minutes many of your friends or family members could ever spend. I might be a little biased. And if they enjoyed it, it's part one of two. One month later, November 7th of 2018, Get Started Investing, part two of two. A second hour, largely reacting to questions that were occasioned of our listeners by that first podcast in October 2018. So if you Google Get Started Investing, Rule Breaker Investing, I hope you'll find those, but I gave you the dates so you can find them on Spotify or Apple. And Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger and I did that series so everybody listening at any point in the future could go and get started right there. So that's my second answer. And my third answer, also somewhat self-interested, I think Motley Fool Stock Advisor is the Motley Fool's entry-level price service that has wonderful performance and a great mix of companies with stocks being picked by Team Tom and Team David. Lots of different people helping out with Motley Fool Stock Advisor. I think it's a wonderful way for a lot of people to get started investing. So that's a third answer, but that's enough for me. I feel like I've talked too much the first half hour of this podcast. Let me now welcome my guest star, returning guest star this month, Aaron Bush. Aaron, great to see you again on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks for having me as always. And you got to hear, because we welcomed you in during me reading Ronnie's note. And Aaron, it, it occurs to me that you started investing well earlier than 19. You're now a little older than 19, but you're in your 20s. You've got a lot of, well, maybe family members, but certainly a lot of friends who might have similar questions. What do you say to them? Well, uh, a couple things. First, I it's important to recognize that everybody is different. And so everybody is interested in different things. Everybody has different levels of risk that they're comfortable with. And so what I've found when talking to people is it's often important to figure out what they're interested in, whether that could be, you know, someone is interested in Disney or just entertainment in general. Maybe somebody is interested in technology, software, whatever it is. Um, finding what people are interested in is often a good wedge into making the conversation more interesting and intriguing and potentially more rewarding for them. Mm, mm, and, love it. Love it. And, and sometimes too, like, it's okay that some people are nervous. They're being protective of what they've worked really hard to build. And I think when you have conversations with people about risk, in the same way that it makes sense to start with what they think is interesting, sometimes it's okay to start with what they think is comfortable. So even if you know their level of risk perhaps is lower than yours, and it might mean investing in um, you know, bigger, safer, slower growing companies, maybe, you know, there might be interested in like real estate types of stocks and you're more interested in tech stocks. I think that's totally um, okay. And just remember that how people get in, it really is the first step on a broader journey. Mm. Um, and really just, you know, catering the conversation to them, fig figuring out what their own first step um, should be is really important. And lastly, the kind of the last point I would say, uh, too, is just sometimes people need time. 
Um, you know, I started investing, as you mentioned, David, pretty young. And I could not understand why my friends were not as interested in investing as I was. Um, but, you know, a few years later, several years later, many of them have come around. And it's just because they're now at a different point in their lives where they feel like they can put their own mental energy behind it. They've figured their own lives out a little bit more, whether it's figuring out what job they're going to have or how they you know, view family and managing money in general. Mm, great um, point. And so um, when you're young, I think there's just a lot of... It, it's smart to be patient. It's okay to take it slow. But what's important is helping people get to that first step in the first place. And then it's a lot easier to take the second step once you've taken the first. I feel like I broad brushed my answer. I made, made it sound a little oversimple with the back of the envelope. And the truth is, if you zoom in on that graph that goes from the lower left to the upper right, if you zoom in on a given month or year, it goes down. It's important for people to see that. But I really like your point, Aaron, because if these are friends or family members you're talking to, you know these people. So drawing on your knowledge of them, both their interests to connect those to companies and then their mindset to connect your advice to be appropriate to them makes a huge difference. And I kind of broad brushed over that. I'm really glad that you went right there, Aaron. Shall we do another mailbag item together? I feel like that was a good one. Let's do it. All right, let's keep going. So we're going to definitely do some NFTs, but we have a mixture of some of the things that you love most. And I love this stuff too, like gaming companies and investing thoughts and NFTs. So Let's do four mailbag items together, starting with the rule breaker mailbag item number five. This is from Michael Maxwell. Hi, David. Thanks for the timely podcast last week on blockchain and NFT. As always, I became wiser and perhaps richer as a result. Well, after listening to the podcast, the announcement of the Microsoft acquisition of Activision Blizzard, certainly a big story became more curious. It would seem that the value proposition is not just to edge out the gaming competition, but but launches Microsoft, Michael writes, into the NFT and Bitcoin ecosystem. That's with a question mark, Aaron. Do you or any of your analysts, in this case we have Aaron, do you agree? Do you have more thoughts about gaming and the Bitcoin economy? Michael closes full on. Aaron Bush go. All right. Well, first of all, Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard, that's a huge deal. That's, uh, I mean, that's a pretty enormous move for the gaming industry. One week before that deal went down, it was announced that Take-Two was going to acquire Zynga. I think we can dig into that in a little bit. But at that time, that was the largest gaming acquisition ever at about a $12 billion market cap. Microsoft's acquisition of Activision was about $70 billion. So this is a huge step up. And it was Microsoft's largest acquisition ever. This is a company that's bought LinkedIn, a bunch of other companies. And yeah, so this was at a new scale. Absolutely was. Um, but what's interesting to note is that this probably has very little to do with crypto. It probably has very little to do with blockchain games. It's important to remember that the gaming industry is enormous. Um, with many different platforms, many different players, many different kinds of games. And really, I think what Microsoft is trying to do here is build its ecosystem of, of IP and services in order to just become like a leading gaming titan that aims to serve 3 billion gamers in the long run. Activision Blizzard, across all of their games, they have about 400 monthly active users. So this is a pretty big... 400 million, I think you meant to say, Aaron. Because 400 yes. monthly active users, 
That's not many. Yes. So uh, apologies, 400 million <laughs> monthly active users add multiply by a million. And um, that's how many new users that act, that Microsoft is getting from Activision Blizzard. Plus, they're getting tremendous IP um, like Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, etc. So really, this is a huge move that increases Microsoft's scale in gaming. Um, and it really, that ecosystem revolves around console, PC, mobile subscription services, but doesn't yet have anything to do with crypto or blockchain gaming. That doesn't mean that it won't in the future, but at present, um, that's not the case, but it's still interesting. Now, Aaron, a lot of people are talking about, of course, the metaverse, this presumed Web3, this this world that's much more immersive than we remember the internet or even than we remember video games, if you will. And it does seem, given that Sony uh, of course, the purveyor of the PlayStation, which so far is, I think it's well outselling the new Xbox, the PlayStation 5. Both are great machines, but Sony got hit double-digit percentage drop just based on that acquisition news. And of course, Facebook is no longer Facebook since it's renamed itself Meta Platforms, I think, but Meta. And so it felt to some of us, I'm curious if you felt this way, that Microsoft had really shifted plate tectonically the metaverse possibilities with this, and I guess we should still say potential acquisition because it hasn't been fully approved. Right. Um, I mean, I tend to think of the metaverse more as a buzzword than anything, um, and so it's <laughs> it, it's hard for it's hard for me to really use it in a super concrete way when comparing across all of these companies. Because I guarantee you, if you put Mark Zuckerberg in the same room as Satya Nadella, uh, CEO of Microsoft, they're not going to agree on what the metaverse is or where it should go. Um, but I think, you know, really the oversimplistic definition of the metaverse is just the next iteration of the internet that is more immersive mm-hmm. um, and across many different ways. And so when you look at gaming, gaming has essentially already been that. It's, um, it's already been virtual worlds, um, you know, online social gatherings, et cetera, where um, people spend lots of time digitally. Um, with their own, you know, digital profiles, earning digital money, etc. And and so it makes sense. I, I understand why people are, you know, looking at gaming as the tip of the spear for the metaverse. I think there's a lot of truth to that technologically and socially. Um, but you know, whether Microsoft is, you know, taking a shot to dominate the metaverse, I don't think that's really the case. I think what we're going to see is all of these companies are going to, you know, be vying for you know, their positions across this enormous trend that is the future of the internet. Um, And this is far from a zero-sum game. Well said, Aaron. And yeah, before Ready Player One not just hit the silver screen, but before it was even published as a book, which, by the way, I think was 2011, World of Warcraft had been going a long time, a lot of other things besides. Those of us who are lifetime gamers, and I'm one of them, recognize that games have not only been around and a pretty dominant art form for a long period of time, but they've really outscaled most of the others. And it increasingly does feel as if the internet is one big gamification or maybe one big step away from total gamification. It's fascinating to watch. And, you know, Aaron, I did wonder aloud by text to my two adult sons with whom I've video gamed many an hour over the years, asking, you know, do you think Microsoft will take Activision's let's say their Call of Duty franchise and make it exclusive to the Xbox or or make it a better version on the Xbox. Do you think Microsoft is going to mess with Activision Blizzard at all or 
be more like Warren Buffett and just let them operate as a great operator? Oh, they're totally going to mess with it. Um, we've already seen this before and uh, previous acquisitions such as of Bethesda, which owns big franchises like Elder Scrolls, Fallout. Um, and those games did become exclusives with Xbox. And so I think there are some big questions with Activision, such as, you know, Call of Duty. It's such an enormous franchise um, that would they really want to mess with making it exclusive? Right. And my feeling is um, parts of Call of Duty will not be exclusive, such as their free-to-play games, obviously on mobile and also Warzone and console and PC. But it wouldn't surprise me if over time they lean more into making the premium version more exclusive. All there right. definitely is strategic rationale um, behind this deal. They wouldn't just be doing it to add IP. They're doing it to increase the value of their ecosystem to make their subscriptions more value valuable. Um, so yeah, I think we're going to see them mess with Call of Duty a little bit. I think we'll also see them um, make other key franchises fold into their subscription service and be available on day one when new games launch. Plus, we'll see um, how games you know, like World of Warcraft, which already have a subscription component, how they tie that into their existing mm. subscription services. And so there are a lot of unanswered questions. And it's obviously going to be a couple of years before we have the answers because the deal isn't even going to close for 18 months. Okay. But um, once that happens, it wouldn't surprise me if they move somewhat quickly and well, moving yeah, things around. Because anything of this scale was contemplated for probably at least six, if not 18 months in advance. I'm sure a lot of integrated thinking has already occurred that we're not privy to. It'll be fascinating to watch. And thank you, Aaron, for those viewpoints and for geeking out with us a little bit on of course. gaming. And why don't we continue doing it one more mailbag item? Because Rule Breaker mailbag item number six comes from Hong Kong and Eric Leong. Dear David, hello from Hong Kong. I discovered investing in my passion for it last year, all courtesy of stumbling across an unusual-sounding organization called The Motley Fool. Thank you. There have been a few major acquisition announcements in the market recently, Eric writes. Microsoft Activision, Take-Two Zynga, which you just mentioned earlier, Aaron. Eric continues, I noticed that when acquisition news is announced, the stock price of the acquirer tends to fall, whilst the acquiree or target tends to spike upward. Eric writes, I own both Take-Two and Zynga, so when the acquisition was announced, I decided to buy more Take-Two to take advantage of the drop and sell more Zynga to take advantage of the spike. Does this approach make any sense whatsoever, or am I small f fooling myself? Thanks, Eric Leong. Aaron? I think what we often see uh, with acquisitions, and especially in the case of Take-Two acquiring Zynga, is that a lot of times they come with pretty decent premiums. In the case of Zynga, the, the premium was about 64% from the price that it was trading at the day before the announcement, um, which caused many people in the market to wonder whether Take-Two was overpaying for the deal, given some of the, the recent turbulence that, that Zynga has been facing in its business. And so obviously you could see why uh, Zynga stock would rise up, but also that might help explain why, at least on that day that the deal was announced, Take-Two stock fell too. Of course, you know, over the next week, I think it went back up to the price that it was already trading at. So it's never about a day, is it? It's never. Um, so maybe in this case, that 
you know, that trade worked out for you. But really, I think what's important to remember is that these companies are moving in a direction of being the same business. And if you look at how the deal is structured, some of it is in cash. Um, and, some of, and some of it, a big part of it is in stock. Uh, Take-Two is giving up a third of their share count to acquire Zynga. And so, uh, and Zynga stock is still trading below the price at which that they that they agreed on, I think, because mm-hmm. um, there's still some questions about whether the deal will fully go through. Um, so as someone who owns both uh, both stocks, I'm not doing anything. I'm just writing it out. I still like Zynga as a company. I still like Take-Two as a company. I think you know, merging together, it's going to be a really strong business. Um, if the deal falls apart, that's okay. Um, if the deal... Uh, pulls through, my Zynga shares will convert into take two. And um, I think it'll continue to be strong performing. And so, you know, maybe in some instances like this, you can be smart and figure out some type of trade. But for the most part, it really isn't needed. As long as you, you know, buy and own great companies, ride them out, you're probably going to do just fine. They're becoming the same thing, as you said, Aaron. And yeah, these, this was a full Retsu moment for me. Anybody who's followed me for a long time knows I use that phrase when one of my companies buys out one of my other companies. In this case, I'd recommended Take-Two multiple times in Motley Fool Rule Breakers over the years and then Zynga multiple times in Stock Advisor. Zynga had certainly fallen hard in 2021. So that 64% premium you're mentioning, Aaron, wasn't even, I'm not even sure it was the 52-week high. So it's not like it was an amazing final outcome, although. It has been a good company, and that's a stronger company going forward. Not as big as Microsoft slash Activision Blizzard, not even close, but definitely a great play on the future of gaming, which you and I both love. All right, well, let's move on to Rule Breaker Mailbag. Item number seven, the first time I've ever done one from a high school roommate of mine. So Todd Wickersham, my friend Todd, writing in. Thank you for this note, Todd. Here we go. Rule breaker mailbag item number seven. Hi, David. After listening to your and Aaron's NFT podcast earlier this month, I walked away excited to buy Coinbase Global. That's ticker symbol C-O-I-N, coin. When I spoke to my longtime friend, Birdie Hunter, owner of Wavecrest Wealth Management, who manages an ESG fund that I own shares in, which is a balance to my individual stock investing, because Todd, it sounds like you do both. She discouraged me from buying coin because many cryptocurrencies are facilitating human trafficking, the drug trade, and illegal gun trade. Do you, Aaron, or others at The Fool have thoughts or guidance on how we can invest in crypto in ways that make the world better? Todd writes, I so appreciate how you make investing easier for so many that you encourage us to invest in companies that make the world better better. Signed, your friend. And yes, you are indeed, Todd. Todd Wickersham. Aaron, what thoughts do you have for my high school roommate? Sure. Well, I have a couple thoughts. Um, it's, it's a great question. I think just from almost a philosophical level, the first thing that we have to realize is that with any technology, most technologies are neutral. And it's really people that make them, that use them for good mm. or bad. Um, and I think it's true that, you know, Cryptocurrencies in some cases have been used for bad, um, but they can be used for good too. And if you're going to criticize crypto and Coinbase um, with that logic, then you also probably need to do the same for other technologies. Maybe like the internet. 
yeah, like <laughs> anything, social media, AI, the internet, um, and the list can go on. And so um, I like your, you know, the ending part of your question where you say, how can it be used for good? And I almost would point right back to Coinbase as well. Coinbase's mission is to increase economic freedom in the world. That's a very strong um, mission that leans towards doing a lot of good for a lot of people. Um, and I think they want to um, onboard a, mil- a billion users over time, for example, into their ecosystem to to increase economic freedom. And I think that when you look at crypto specifically, it has a few characteristics that are potentially positive in how you use them. For example, blockchains themselves are transparent. And I think in a lot of cases, a more transparent internet, a more transparent form of money, um, that's actually a good thing. And it helps um, you know, it helps track down bad behavior and remove it from the system in a way that you can't do with a currency like the dollar necessarily. Um, but also, you know, just the fact that this is internet native in the same way that the internet has, um, you know, increased economic opportunity around the world in a way where you can do, you can create a lot of value just by having an internet connection and going to the right websites, the right communities, um, Crypto is an accelerant of that. It's It really is a way that value is stored native to the internet. And so um, I think it's true that crypto is democratizing um, people's avil- ability to create value in a digital way around the world. Well, let's leave it right there. But I, I will say that it reminds me, Aaron, of really eBay was kind of a poster child for the early days of the internet. And eBay would get written up and criticized by people for illegal sales of things on eBay or sales of illegal things on eBay. And I I like what you said, which is it's kind of what humans do with these technologies. And so, yeah, bad actors, unfortunately, are active and they're active in many different fronts and contexts and certainly cryptocurrency and the Internet, social media, AI, all of these things can be used for ill. The good news is, at least in my experience of life, the good guys outnumber the bad guys. And that's why things have generally gotten better over the course of time, and that's reflected in the performance of great companies and the stock markets rise over time. So, Todd, first of all, shout out to our alma mater, St. Mark's School in Southborough, Massachusetts, and I hope that was helpful, not just for you, but for everyone hearing us. And one more, Aaron, rule breaker mailbag item number eight. This one's from Lisa Wharton. You will remember her, our episode together. She was mentioning her son who had an NFT approved, I think, for blast off by NASA headed to the moon, which sounded pretty amazing to me. Well, she comes back with this question. Dear Rule Breaker, I guess I regret not buying any virtual land back in 2017 when I invested in Decentral Land, ticker symbol M-A-N-A. The price has gone up a lot. At the time, I didn't see the point of owning a piece of virtual property since Lisa writes, I was not a gamer. I still don't see the point, but I hear that in the future, we all will own the virtual version of our property on Earth. What do you think of the future of virtual land and the future of tokens like M-A-N-A-S-A-N-D-E-N-J, an alphabet soup of tickers and tokens? Aaron, Speak to this broadly, obviously not the individual tokens, but 
I have to admit, I'm a little bit a fish out of water here. I'm not following this, but it makes sense to me that every single zip code and property on Earth could be virtualized. Sounds like it already has been. And so, can you buy my house? <laughs> so I think there are a couple things here. One is basically taking the physical world and tokenizing it into the digital world. I don't see that happening anytime soon. I just don't see a reason for that. Um, but there is a pretty big movement going on right now where companies, uh, groups are building digital worlds that are cut up into plots of digital land um, that are NFTs that people can buy and sell Um and in a lot of cases, do what they please with. Decentraland is one example. The Sandbox is another. Those are probably the big two okay. um, with a bunch of others that are out there. Um, my take on this is that digital land might have a place um, in the future, but I'm not super optimistic about the projects that I've seen so far. Mm-hmm. And the Achilles heel of these projects, in my opinion, is that they take a lot of the realities that exist in the physical world and port them over to the, the digital world in a way that just isn't needed. So for example, um, digital land, they're really, you know, in digital worlds, you can use magic, right? Like you can have basically infinite digital land. Um, you don't need to be super scarce and what you provide mm-hmm. in order to make prices go higher. Um, with digital land, you know, similar to like in a Harry Potter movie where they go in a little tent and then inside of it, it opens up into it's a much mansion. Bigger. Right. Like, <laughs> why not do that um, with digital land as well, uh, where you can, you know, increase the creative surface area of what you're doing. And so, again, what I've seen for the most part so far is, you know, just very strict rules around like plot sizes, the number of plots, etc. Um, but the worst of it is that... Um, a lot of these platforms are looking to basically be the next like user-generated content platforms where mm. people can build all sorts of great experiences on that land, like games or social events or whatever, um, and then have people come in and they'll build an economy around that. And what I've noticed is that um, introducing the concept of landowners and prioritizing them at the beginning, raising money from them, essentially making them like important stakeholders in that operation. Um, uh, and then having them, how it would work is either they'd have to, you know, build their own projects on the land or find people to rent the land from them to, mm. <laughs> so then build experiences on them. Um, I feel like these projects ha- ha- are prioritizing the wrong thing. Instead of prioritizing building great experiences and attracting users, they're, they've prioritized raising a lot of money through selling land and building a, you know, adding in a stakeholder who isn't actually going to add value that leads to more users and experiences and in, instead is going to extract value. Um, wow. And so... Again, we'll see how this plays out. We're going to see a ton of you know digital land versions out there. We're going to see a lot of these projects go through the hype cycle. Some are going to make big mistakes. Some might improve. Some might not. Um, but I do think it's fascinating. But I think it's going to, at least in the near term, it's going to probably have a hard time before it gets better. Really well said, Aaron. And I, I feel like the two guiding lights for me here as I think about these things are, is it relevant? And is there true scarcity? So let me give a quick example. 
to me, yes, some digital assets are special and valuable. I'm even thinking about a game like World of Warcraft where you might be the only one with the epic magic battle axe that also fires lightning bolts. If that is, in fact the only such item within the game, then you have an amazing asset in the game. And while not everybody even cares about such a game, enough other people do care about such a game that it is worth blinging out your virtual avatars or characters. And so if you have real relevance, like you're in a game that other people are in, and if there is real scarcity, like it's the only epic magic battle axe that fires lightning bolts, that I think your investment money is more likely to actually gain in value. So Aaron, I appreciate you looking at these things and asking, do they really matter? Do they really care? It kind of goes back, in my mind anyway, to my snap test. Sure. And one very, very last thought. Um, digital land isn't new. It's been around in video games for a long time. And in every instance, there's been a digital land crisis. So uh, <laughs> just throwing that out there. Maybe something will be different this time. Um, but good to study the past to understand the future. Well, Aaron Bush, it was a delight to spend that NFT episode earlier this month with you and to have you on again with all of your wisdom and insights on these fascinating topics because none of these is going away. All of them will only become bigger, whether it's Microsoft, Activision, or digital land. It's going to become more talked about and more important as we go forward. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you too, David. All right, well... One left. Thank you again to Aaron Bush for being with me this week. One left. But before I go to Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number nine, let me mention next week, rejoined by one of our favorite authors, Dan Pink, longtime friend of the fool, multi-appearances on Rule Breaker Investing. Dan has a new book out. Yep. It debuts next week. It's called The Power of Regret, and I think it's pretty great. So I get to talk to him not just about his book, although of course we'll talk about that, but we'll talk about choices that you make in life. And we'll talk about book crafting and I don't know, wherever our whimsy takes us. So Dan Pink, The Power of Regret to start February. That one will come out on Groundhog Day next week. All right. Rule Breaker mailbag item number nine. Love this, Burton Taylor. Good evening, David. It's almost funny that while I must admit that my portfolio shows a lot of red these days, I'm not deterred. And stock picks actually have nothing to do with my email. That said, if anything, I suppose this is a great opportunity to let you know that I have appreciated the encouragement and education your team has provided as I ventured into investing as a fool with a capital F the last several years. Trust me when I say I'm in. Thanks, Chris Hill, Burton writes. In fact, I'm not even all that concerned given the impact your lessons have had on me as a foolish and committed long-term buy-and-hold investor. Rather, I am emailing to share that I am extraordinarily grateful to you, David, for holding true to the fool's purpose, not only for the many lessons you and your team have taught me about investing, but also for your commitment to bringing your audience so much joy in other areas of life. Most recently, as one example, thanks to you, I've experienced Again, a happiness with my two kiddos that is hard to describe. This is a direct result of your work and passion, David, because your latest Games, Games, Games episode reminded me of the wonderful time we have with board games. Well, after listening, I couldn't help but pick up one of your recommendations, The Crew, and I'm pleased to report that we are already on Mission 15 and headed to complete all 50 in no time. We have enjoyed it 
all while competing together as a team trying in this setting not to break the rules and laughing all along the way. It's been so fun, David. My son, 15, and daughter, 11, are enjoying it more than I could have hoped or imagined. It's been a great reminder of how powerful play can be in our lives. What's more, it's been a great pastime as I wait for the market to treat my picks, what I believe are great companies with bright futures, a bit better. All that said, I guess what I mean to say is thank you. Thank you for helping us live a smarter, richer, and happier life. Keep up the amazing work and fool on Burton Taylor. Well, how could I not end with just such a lovely note? Because you have perfectly captured a lot of what I've tried to do in life and have so benefited from doing in life. And that is not taking the market too seriously. Because after all, Burton, if you're investing like me, and it sounds like you are, we're going to be invested our whole lives. There will always be some downtimes. And previously on this podcast and on sometimes on other people's podcasts, I've admitted something that I'm happy to admit again today. I do so not feeling even a little bit cowardly. I tend to look at the market much less when it's dropping than when it's rising. I really enjoy watching my stocks appreciate. I enjoy watching my net worth go up. Turns out I don't enjoy watching my stocks drop and my net worth dropping. So admittedly, I tend to disconnect more from watching the market during those times, but I actually believe that has been a psychologically healthy thing to do. The market rises more than it falls. So let's pay attention to what really matters. And in the meantime, Burton and everybody hearing me right now, we have that opportunity. The time we're spending looking at the market, we can do it differently. We can do it better. We can, in your case, mine too, we can play games. We can connect with family. As you wrote, Burton, it's been a great reminder, and I quote you, of how powerful play can be in our lives. I'll quote After quoting Burton Taylor, I'll quote William Shakespeare, the plays, the thing. And I saw a great tweet from at fools underscore GD earlier this month. Gave a shout out to our podcast for exposing him to positive intelligence by Shirzad Shamin. Ship of Fools GD writes, paying more dividends for me than any company ever could. I've always said about this podcast and my work, a third of it is investing, a third of it's about business, and a third of it's about life, which is a great reminder that investing is just a subset. In fact, it's a very meaningful but smaller subset. I think it should be, in terms of how you spend your time, a smaller subset than the much richer thing called life. So Burton Taylor, many of you hearing me right now, I hope you're nodding your heads along with me. I would say... You get it. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.